hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Zania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. My guest this week is Deepa Anapara, whose novel Gin Patrol on the Purple Line has been one of the most hotly anticipated debuts of the year. Set in a slum on the outskirts of an unnamed Indian city, it centers on nine-year-old cop-obsessed Jay and his two best friends who go looking for local children who've gone missing. Energetic, evocative, and yet politically and socially astute, it has won rave reviews from critics and high praise from Ian McEwan, who described it as brilliant. Before moving into fiction, Deepa worked as a journalist in India for 11 years, reporting on the impact of poverty and violence on education, and I'm delighted to be joined by her today. So Deepa, welcome. Thank you for coming along. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Can we start with the title? Can you just, because it's got uh, sort of different bits of significance, uh, can you explain to everyone listening what it means, what the Gin Patrol and the Purple Line are? So the book is narrated by a nine-year-old boy named Jay, Mm. and uh, he and his friends are trying to find out where the children are going, Mm. their friends who are disappearing, where are they? Mm. And so there are several theories, conspiracy theories, so to speak, about where they might be. Mm. And one theory is that they might be abducted by jinns, and jinns are essentially spirits, Mm. and they can take the form of animals or humans. And uh, it is the American version of the jinn is the genie. The but, genie, yes. But it's a much more benevolent creature, whereas right. in India the jinn is feared and respected mm. and worshipped. So um, the children, they're chasing, they're looking for the kidnappers, and uh, they don't know if the kidnappers are human or jinns. So the jinn patrol comes from that um, they're looking for, you know, um, the abductors essentially, who could be. Uh, supernatural. Yes. And uh, Purple Line is a metro line um, near the neighborhood where Jay lives. Mm. And uh, to him, it symbolizes, you know, progress. It goes to the city, Mm. which he doesn't, many things that he doesn't have access to because he lives in an impoverished neighborhood. And it would Mm. be very expensive for him or his parents to travel on that particular line because metro tickets are expensive. So it's both symbolic, but it's also quite literal in the sense that the children travel on the purple line to find out more about um, where their friends might be. And the metro is also uh, one of the buildings that Jay's father, who was a laborer, worked on and constructed. But at the same time, it's something that they can't go into, they can't use every day. So there's also that symbolic significance. So you you kind of get a, a hint of what I'm going to ask you about there, actually, already. But one thing that, that is very interesting is it all sounds quite kind of famous fivey and sort of gung-ho, but there are these darker undertones. Um, I mean, obviously missing children, but, you know, religious tensions at one stage, um, residents try and blame the abductions on Muslims, and you get these insights into poverty. The residents of the slum live in fear of having their homes bulldozed. How important was it for you as a former reporter to incorporate that kind of contemporary social commentary, uh, that element of documentation into the novel? 
I tried to write it really from Jay's perspective and I was really looking at it from his point of view, you mm. know, which would first of all, vertically, it would be much lower than that of an adult. Mm. And I was trying to really focus on what his interests were, which is, you know, these really silly shows that he sees on TV about cops mm. and uh, criminals and also... Uh, he's interested in food because he doesn't get a lot of food and he's mm. always hungry and he's also a bit greedy. <laughs> so it is, it's just something that I wanted to focus on and to tell the story from really from his point of view. But there's also this danger when you're writing, especially about India and about poverty, that mm. Um, you know, you could, you, it can become quite romanticized mm. or you, you end up stereotyping people in mm. certain ways. And mm. I was very aware of that as I was writing it. And I wanted to avoid any sort of sensationalization or, you know, sentimentality in mm. how I presented these characters. And which is why Jay's voice was so important to me because, mm. you know, he's very self-assured, he's confident. He's a bit delusional. And all mm. that was necessary to convey what these characters were really like because they came from the children that I had met while working as a journalist who were living in quite difficult situations but were often, you know, very cheeky, very sarcastic and could, you know, give it back as good as they got. So I wanted to capture those traits mm. in writing these children. At the same time, I felt a great deal of responsibility about the people that I was writing about and the society that I'm writing about. So those were the elements where my research as a journalist, my work as a journalist came in because I wanted to be really accurate in the portrayal of their daily lives. But at the same time, you know, without making it seem as if these people are just their problems, it was really mm. important to me that they stood out as, you know, characters in their own right. Mm. Without, I wanted people to see beyond their living situations, which is not something that they have any control over. Hmm. And can I ask a little bit of background about you? You grew up in Kerala. What were you like as a child? Were you a big bookworm? Had you always wanted to write fiction? What were you like? Uh, yeah, I grew up in Kerala, which is in southern India, and I was always reading. <laughs> I was quite, uh, um, I was not an extrovert. So books were essentially my escape. Mm. And uh, the strange thing is that in India, you grew up reading Famous Five and Three Investigators and Hardy Boys Mm. at that time. Now, Mm. of course, it's, you know, J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. It's different. different. (laughs) But at that time, so these these books were really popular. And so, I mean, obviously, I read books in my mother tongue, which is Malayalam, but I also read a lot of English books. And... uh, I think that influence does come through in uh, in this book in the sense mm. that it is still an adventure story and the kids mm. are, at least in the beginning, they're seeing it as a grand adventure, which they can go on and, you know, try to bring all the uh, children back. So I think I'm much more closer to what Pari was like, in the, you know, because Pari is quite a bookish yes. child. But at the same time, she's Swati. very good with adults. She can get people to... Um, talk to her to tell them things that you know they might not tell strangers which is really a good skill to have as a detective and that was a skill that I didn't have as a child yeah and tell me how you got into journalism am I right in thinking it was partly as a result of the fact that you wanted to write but your family didn't think fiction was hugely realistic as a career move yeah absolutely (laughs) (laughs) right so I mean very rightly they didn't see that as a livelihood and, you know, I don't come from a background where you can say, I'll take a couple of years off and I'll see if it works out or not. It was really mm. important that I had to go out and earn a living. And mm. that was very clear to me right from the time as a child. And I, I did try to do other things. You know, in college, I studied sort of accountancy and statistics mm. uh, in the hope that 
yeah, maybe I can become an accountant. But by the end of my degree, I knew that my heart was not in it. I knew I wanted to write. I, I was also quite an idealistic child. And I thought if I became a journalist, I could point to, you know, all the problems, the inequities in my society. And that was part of the reason why I chose, I mean, it was the main reason why I chose journalism, because I could write and it was a way in which I could engage with the world around me. And I didn't know how to do that by talking really and print journalism was, you know, one way into that. And you won awards for your work looking at the impact of poverty and and violence on education. You won the Developing Asia Journalism Award, the Every Human Has a Right Media Award, and the um, Sanskriti Prab. Uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce Prabhadet Foundation. Prabhadet Foundation yeah. uh, Journalism Award. How did you come to focus on education? What was your trajectory in that sense? I don't think I really chose it. I think it was a beat my editor put me on. Right. Yeah, because... <laughs> <laughs> I, as a journalist, I can... That is often the way. <laughs> I was working for a national newspaper in Mumbai. That was my first job. And uh, so initially, you know, I think when you're working as a trainee, you sort of... I started out on the desk of the newspaper editing mm. um, articles and, you know, making pages. And then after six months, I switched to reporting. And so essentially, in the beginning, I was doing everything I was asked to do, which is often the way you don't have much say when you're mm-hmm. just starting out. And then I was given this beat, which was education. And I really enjoyed it, actually, because it's quite, um, you know, I, I felt like I was doing something which mattered, whether, you know, I, I was quite idealistic at that time. Now I'm a lot more cynical. But at that time, definitely it felt like I was writing about issues that mattered and um, I could go out and meet children in various situations you know just meeting uh, kids who were in good schools you know middle class children but also children um, who would be going to government schools which would be quite run down often and writing about their problems um, why they couldn't study for instance or why they had to drop out of school and um, I I enjoyed doing that. Why are you more cynical now? I think I could go back and do many of those stories and it would still be true, you know. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, Many of those issues that I wrote about, they're still still problematic even today. So it's not that you write an article and then you see some sort of change. But of course, you know, um, sometimes you write and uh, once in a blue moon something will happen because of that. But that's much, it's rare. Mm. Um, you've said that you thought of writing the novel for eight years before you even sat down a single word. What do you mean by that? Did you actually have the idea or was it just thinking of writing a novel? What were you doing for those eight years and why didn't you, you start? Yeah, so when I was working as a journalist is when I came to learn about these disappearances of children mm. because, you know... Um, uh, one of the charities that works in this area put out this figure saying that 180 children disappear each day. So I was very aware of that number and I was talking to children in such neighbourhoods. And uh, when you have a news report on the disappearances of children, what is missing is the, you know, what's missing are the voices of children because mm-hmm. it's just by necessity they are not there. So we don't know what they're feeling. Mm. And I really wanted to write a story about these disappearances from their point of view. But I for various personal reasons, I ended up not being able to. I moved away from India and um, I wasn't working as a journalist anymore. But, you know, these questions about the children 
um, how they sort of understood what was happening to them when this um, when disappearances happen because there are neighborhoods even today in India where uh, children go missing all the time and no one looks for them essentially the police or you know governmental um, organizations that are meant to help them don't uh, so parents don't have answers for two or three years or mm. you know or they, they live without answers for the rest of their lives as to where their children have gone and I wanted to my interest was really in uh, how did children make sense of that and mm. because I was writing about them most of the time and I had those questions and then when I moved to this country is when I first did a creative writing course because I didn't have any background in literature or writing so I didn't really know you know how to write fiction and I felt that it was necessary for me to get some formal grounding so I did an evening course in um, novel writing and I tried to write um, we had to submit an excerpt of something resembling a novel for the course and I tried to write about these children but I couldn't because partly because I think it's, it is a really difficult subject it's very dark mm-hmm. and I wasn't really sure do I want to you know when you're writing a novel, you have to spend sort of two or three years with these yes. characters and with these yeah. themes. And I had to ask myself, do I really want to do it? This is quite a dark subject. And so I didn't, I couldn't write it. It was in the back of my mind, but I put it away. And then I was, I wrote something else. I wrote two novels, which, you know, I completed, but they didn't go anywhere. I wrote a collection of short stories, which is also sitting on my laptop. And that didn't go anywhere either. And it was after that that, you know, I again tried writing it when I was on the MA at UEA, which I did part-time. And um, so somehow, due to a combination of factors, Jay's voice came to me and I knew I could tell the story through him because he's a character with enormous amounts of playfulness and lightness. And I felt that his voice could carry such a dark story. It could counterbalance that, the darkness, essentially. When you say those other works, the two novels and the short story collections, didn't go anywhere... Um, did you try and put them anywhere or? I did actually with my first book because um, I wrote it uh, during an evening course in City which was a year long in novel writing and uh, my teacher had put me in touch with an agent so I think I sent it to her and uh, she, uh, she didn't take it on but I didn't send it to you know I think you're, you're expected to send it to many multiple mm, people but mm. I didn't really do that because I myself felt at that point that this isn't good enough right you know right. and with this second novel I didn't send it to anyone because I just felt it's, this is not good hmm. well maybe maybe it's time to dig it out <laughs> and what brought you to the UK in particular it was essentially my husband was transferred right. here and so it was just meant just to be a reason. It was just meant to be a year, you know, and like many immigrants, we <laughs> ended up staying. In the book, you don't name the city. Why is that? So essentially, this is something, the disappearances of children, it happens in every city in India. And I've worked in, you know, um, on and off, i worked in multiple cities in India. And I know this is something that happens everywhere. So I wanted the city in the country this this unnamed city to stand for any city in India and I felt that it would be better not to name it Mm. but also I needed some distance from the real life instances of disappearances Mm. that are taking place in India because uh, it is drawn from these stories the book is you know even though it's fiction the spark came from real life disappearances of children but at the same time for me to write it um, I had to be sure I was not trespassing on anyone's pain, on anyone's stories. And to achieve that distance, you know, the best way was to put it in and set it in an unnamed city. And I could just, you know, populate it the way I 
wanted to and you know put in tracks and malls and buildings wherever I wanted. You mentioned then and, and also earlier not uh, trespassing on, on people's circumstances and not sort of romanticizing poverty or conforming to I suppose stereotypes and I know another concern that you've had that, you, that you've written about is almost the idea of, of cultural appropriation because I mean you've been challenged on the fact that the book deals with people living in poverty but you yourself come from a more comfortable background and that's been compared to being akin to cultural appropriation how do you feel about that criticism and how do you deal with it so this is somebody who didn't know anything about me at all. Yes, no, I hasten to add, it's, by the way, this isn't a widespread criticism sort of in the newspapers or anything. This is a piece you wrote yeah, in which you recounted this anecdote yeah. where someone had challenged you on this issue. And I was so intrigued by the fact that you brought it to the fore and intrigued by the concept of, I, suppose, I mean, I don't really know what to call it because it's not quite, cultural appropriation isn't quite the right word, but it's just sort, it's sort of experience appropriation, I suppose. But then that is... The nature of fiction. Anyway, over to you. (laughs) I think it's a very specific concern for Indians. Maybe people in the West might not be really aware of that. Mm. But there is this ongoing, I don't know what to call it, but this ongoing criticism against writers who don't live in India but live in the West and write in English. Mm. And this is constant allegation that what they're writing you know such writers write about is not authentic in some way definitely not as authentic as what someone writing in an Indian language Mm. it's as compared to that someone writing in English living abroad you know it's just sort of I don't I don't know if it's coming from close analysis or proper criticism it's just something very easy to say uh, many Indian writers writing in English actually do live abroad and they return, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, their books are um, my go-to books, for instance, you mm. know, when I'm looking at how to write about the country or about a particular issue. My way in often is by looking at those works. But I think it's a very easy criticism to make. It's not something that is coming from any sort of proper understanding or depth, I would say, because I'm, I'm doing a PhD at the moment. And if I have to criticize something in a work, I really have to be sure of what I'm saying. Mm. I think this is just a very easy, uh, you know, it's, it's an easy way to dismiss someone without knowing anything about them or their book. And mm. definitely in this particular case, I wanted to write about it because books about poverty are often criticized in India, because mm. uh, the concern is that people are these writers are presenting a version of India that the West wants to see, which is not the real India. And the West wants to see has the sort of exotic image of India or mm. in a way oriental sort of concepts about what the country mm. is like. Or they think that they associate India with poverty. And a writer writing about poverty is just, you know, adding to those stereotypes and mm. you know, feeding into that misrepresentation. And I think there are genuine there is a reason for those concerns, you know. Um, we were colonized. Uh, we've got all sorts of representations of our country, which you mm. know make me mad when I read it. And so, it's the fears are coming from someplace real, but it doesn't mean that you know there can't be a sort of blanket criticism about um, people writing about poverty, which is still real, and you know, or the disappearances of children, which is which are also quite real. It doesn't mean that these things are absent or they've gone away. Uh, I saw it as continuing the work that I had done as a journalist, you know, because my work as a journalist was quite political. 
mm-hmm. and I was writing about poverty and about children living in poverty and I just saw my fiction as a way to continue that work it definitely I do have a political imperative and I'm writing even fiction mm. can I ask you about the um, MA in creative writing that you did uh, at the University of East Anglia yeah it's really interesting because just on this podcast I've interviewed so many successful authors who've graduated from that particular course right. why did you feel that you needed to study creative writing it can I mean there can sometimes be a bit of debate over whether it's something that can be taught but it does seem to be becoming increasingly mainstream I mean it really depends on the person I think you know it's the same with any sort of writing advice I think you have to find out figure out what works for you and it's not that you know writing writing tips one person's writing tip may not work for another person and it, I think it's the same with courses because when you're sitting in a in a as part of a course, you're receiving feedback on your work and people might find that sort of feedback difficult to deal with because you'll have, you know, 10 or 12 people telling you what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to filter that criticism and decide what's really, you know, in the best interest of the work. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's I, I don't think that that comes easy. Perhaps it mm-hmm. comes with some sort of experience as well. So, but for me, I, as I said, you know, I hadn't even studied English literature. So I just, I didn't have basic sort of grounding in Mm. literature. Even though I'd read books, I didn't know how to read them closely. I didn't know how to analyze Mm. techniques. Whereas, so what these writing courses really taught me was to sort of read closely. Not Mm. just, you know, it's not that when you go into a course, they teach you how to write. The MA definitely doesn't do that. Mm. When you're going in, you're just submitting work and it's there's there are workshops where that work is critiqued Mm. and no one tells you this is how you should write. You know, you're expected to know how to write by the time you're in a master's. But what it does teach you, what these courses do teach you is to really read the book very closely, see what the writer has done with technique, you know, of its structure, with character, with plot. And it's it's I think that's good information to have. And so, so I think for, for me, it makes it much more enjoyable to read a book, you know, seeing that sort of scaffolding, which is holding mm. the book together. Mm. And scaffolding is defi- a good way of putting it. That's definitely what, for me, the course did. But also it gave me this sort of, I met a bunch of people whose feedback I trusted and whose writing I really admired. And I've been able to sort of swap work with them over the years. Mm. And that's been really useful. But it doesn't mean you have to, you know, do an MA to find that community. You might just mm. be able to find it locally or, you know, in your library or in an evening course. It doesn't mean you have to go and do a master's. Yeah. And what do you like as a writer? How do you divide your time in terms of planning versus writing versus editing? And, and what's your routine like? Do you have a routine? <laughs> <laughs> I want to say I do, but the truth is that I don't. It, I think it really depends. Having a routine is also, I think, a function of privilege in the sense that, you know, it really depends on whether you have um, to take care of children or take care of your parents or your caregiving responsibilities or work. And all those can be demands on your time. Mm. And it's very easy to say um, you should do that. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Mm. I do try to write every morning, first thing in the morning. When I wake up, you know, I just get my coffee and sit at my desk. What time of day is that? Around 5.30. Okay, uh, for me, 5:30. that's, yeah, that's around, for me, that's, if I can do that, mm. you know, that for me is like a good writing day. If I can get two or three hours in, mm. it doesn't happen every, every day. <laughs> and did you plan this whole novel out before you, or did you just start 
putting words on a no, page. No, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a planner. For me, I mm. really need to know who the characters are and that comes from writing them. Mm. So, for instance, when I was writing Jay, I wrote the first paragraph and at the end of the paragraph, he says, a jinn might be looking down on me. And that's when I realized, oh, this is a kid who believes in jinns. I mm. didn't know that before I was writing that, you know. So, for me, I learn about the characters as I keep writing them. And, you know, and I'm constantly thinking of how they are responding to a particular situation, how they will respond to a situation, and that's what directs the plot. I'm not a plotter, but with in during revisions, I sort of worked out what is happening in each scene and then move things around. So the plotting part of it for me comes during revisions. In the first draft, it's essentially just following the characters and learning more about them. And can you tell me about your path to publication on this particularly interesting given that you've got the unpublished works on your computer yeah what was your trajectory with this one uh with this book yeah so I wrote these other books with this one in the back of my mind and then I wrote it during the MA I did it part-time over two Mm. years and I submitted an extract for the Britport Prize and I was told it was long-listed and Mm. uh, then shortlisted and for each you know, so every time you're longlisted or shortlisted, you have to submit longer and longer extracts. Mm. So that was a good, really good deadline to have. So I had mm. to complete, have polished words, you know, to meet the deadline. So I found that really useful. And uh, so because it won the Bridport Prize, you know, I had agent interest. And uh, but it was really, I felt that it was too early because I hadn't finished the book. Mm. It wasn't in a shape in which I could send it out to people. So I just, yeah, I kept working on the novel. And then it won these two prizes. So I think that was really useful. And that was the Lucy Cavendish. And the Deborah Rogers Rogers Foundation Prize, which is where I met my agents. Right. So, yeah, with this novel, because, you know, people had read uh, the first 30,000 words and they already knew. I mean, they had read the synopsis as well. Uh, I had to submit that for the prizes. So they knew what the story was. Uh, so it was essentially I had to take a decision about um, who to submit to at the end, which is mm. what I did. Yeah. Mm. And as I mentioned at the start, it's been included on lots of sort of hotly tipped lists. And I'm talking to you just after it has been released. And you've already told me you're, you're not reading the reviews. How are you feeling and why aren't you reading the reviews? I think at the moment it's too much for me. It's it's quite nerve-wracking. It's mm. a bit like, you know, your work is being judged really quite publicly and mm. you've got a you know, my friends are sending me messages saying, hey, I saw this review and I'm like, no, no, don't just don't tell me anything, mm. you know, because I feel quite vulnerable in this situation. Mm. And because it's quite, the book is quite personal to me. I know when, you know, a reviewer is writing or criticizing the book, it's not about me, it's about the work mm. and how they respond to it. And it is, their responses are also quite personal, depends on who they are as a person, how they respond to my book as well. I'm aware of all that, but at the moment... I just feel it's too much to have multiple voices in my head, especially when I had to do sort of publicity and, you know, talk about the book. I don't want anything else in my head at this moment. I think I'll sit down and read reviews, but not right now. (laughs) And how are you finding doing the publicity? Having been a journalist, how do you find having the questions put to you? It's been quite difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't think this is, um, you know, it's not something I've done before and... uh, yeah, I'm just really used to 
you know, sitting in my study or somewhere in a library or coffee shop and writing, not talking to people. That's mm. much more me than um, yeah, trying to sort of talk about my book. But I also see it's, I, I do think it's really necessary. I do want people to read the book and know about it. And I see it as an essential part of that process. I'm going to let you go soon. Um, but before I do, uh, just two final things. Sure. First of all, what is next for you? What are you excited about for the rest of 2020? I mean, I'm most excited. I don't know if excited is a word I should use. <laughs> well, Filled I am with a... horror and dread? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but I am working on my second novel as part of the PhD that I'm Correct. doing. And I'm looking forward to continuing working on it. All writers complain about writing. And definitely this is also, you know, there are good days and bad days. Um, but... Uh, I'm looking forward to being in the world of that novel. Mm-hmm. And and my final question, which I ask everyone, which is, if you could go back and give your younger self, whether it's the aspiring author or just, just a younger version of yourself, one piece of advice, what would it be? It would probably to be not so disheartened by rejections and to take them to heart. Because with the first novel with this, you know, I think one or two people said no, and then I didn't send it out at all. And I was mm. so convinced I couldn't write. I didn't write for a year. I was writing sort of short stories mm. and other things, but I was quite, I just thought, no, I can't do this. doesn't mean, you know, I've suddenly become a good writer. I'm not saying any of that, but I think it's worth it to sort of keep writing. And mm. if you really believe in the story, if it's something that you're passionate about, I think you have to keep writing irrespective of what, you know, anyone tells you. So that would essentially be my advice to my younger self, to mm. have more faith. And quite possibly there'll be uh, some publishers listening and they'll be going, hang on, wait, there's another one that's already written? <laughs> <laughs> Give me a call. On that note, Deepa, thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Um, it's been such a joy, so thank you. And to everyone listening, Gin Patrol on the Purple Line is out now. So that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening to the Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Zania. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do consider leaving a review or a rating. Uh, It really helps other people find it and spreads the word about the podcast. So until next week, thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.